Stanford University. Uh, but thank you for being here. I'm Charlie Yunkerman. I'm the Dean of Continuing Studies. And it's always a pleasure to spend an evening with you. It'll be a special pleasure tonight to hear Barbara Babcock talk about her new biography of Clara Foltz. As you know, in your, as you read in your printed program, um, or you know from the catalog, uh, this is an evening in which we bring together uh, two remarkable women who have claim to many firsts in their lives. Uh, Barbara is the first uh, female, first woman to be appointed to a regular faculty position in the Stanford Law School, and the first director of the Public Defender Service in Washington, D.C., first director of any gender. And Clara Fultz, the subject of her biography, is, as you know, the first woman lawyer in California, and um, Clara had to sue the first law school in California in order to be admitted as a student in the 1870s. So. Barbara just told me before, um, while we were chatting, that this is her 52nd uh, appearance, talking about her book, which is remarkable, and s somehow seems, maybe this is the end of a year for you, or something, it should be some, something you know, symmetrical like that, but we're very glad to have her here. She's well known to many of you in the room, uh, and uh, the book may also be uh, well known to you from reviews. It was widely, uh, eagerly awaited and then uh, met with uh, uh, widespread critical applause, not just for the book, but an incident, not just incidentally either, but for um, Barbara herself. Uh, the approval of the book comes with widespread admiration for Barbara as a person and as a scholar. And her ability uh, to link the challenges of the 19th century in California for a woman, lawyer, Clara Foltz, and challenges that we're all facing in 21st century California and our need for models of idealism and courage um, today. Now, Barbara probably with her modesty would not include herself in that category of models of idealism and courage, but her colleagues from around the world and her students over many years of course, would argue with her and put her in the first tier. Uh, she is the um, Judge John Crown. John, do I have his first name correct, Barbara? Yes. John Crown, Professor of Law Emerita, and uh, an expert, acknowledged national, international expert on civil procedure, um, criminal and civil procedure, and on the role of women in the legal profession. Outside of Stanford, as I said, she served as the director of the Public Defender Service in Washington, D.C., and was assistant attorney general um, for civil, in the civil division, assistant attorney general for the civil division in the um, Carter administration. On the farm, uh, as I said, I suspect she's well known to many of you, and she has the distinction of being the only four-time winner of the John Bingham Hurlburt Award for Excellence in Teaching in the Law School. So for multiple reasons, we have a treat in store for us tonight. Barbara will talk about the book, then of course uh, welcome questions um, and discussion, and then afterwards, as you saw, the Stanford Bookstore has a table in the lobby, and Barbara's happy to inscribe books that you buy. So please join me in welcoming Barbara Babcock. As a great introduction. A great introduction is very important. And I was, uh, I was really, uh, um, I'm just really impressed that you all came out on this dark, cold night. <laughs> and I love it. Um, and, and this is indeed 
the 52nd uh, appearance that I've done since the book was published uh, last January. Um, I just decided that I would, having spent some time in writing it, um, I would just take a year off and sell it uh, and promote it. And um, so I, I, I had this new thing of just uh, whatever people ask me, I said yes. Uh, and it really startles them. You know, uh, they, they say, will you come and speak to our Rotary Club in Half Moon Bay? And I say, yes, you will? <laughs> you know, it, it, it really has been. Um, and so I, I've, um, it, it really is fun, although I, I kind of regret the thousands of dollars I spent learning how to say no on therapy. But, um, <laughs> but, but saying yes uh, is, is very pleasing also. I've been to San Francisco, Davis, Sacramento, Berkeley, Oakland, Morgan Hill, Half Moon Bay, Los Angeles, Monterey, San Luis Obispo, New York, Washington, D.C., Seattle, Washington, Durham, Chicago, St. Louis, and Portland. And some of those places I've been more than once. Um, and, um, and, 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 and the number is especially impressive because I took the summer off to save my sanity, uh, and I started writing um, Recollections of a Woman Lawyer, which is going to be about my own life uh, in the law. Uh, and so one of the chapters will be about the year of the book tour, um, <laughs> in which I learned a lot about myself and the book, um, and America in a way, um, what I learned from my travels with Clara. So um, tonight is my first take uh, on this chapter. So my plan is to talk for 30 or 40 minutes um, and then take questions and comments. Though, though, if anyone needs clarification or wants to make a comment as I go along, please feel free to uh, raise your hand. Uh, though it's been some years now since I um, taught in law school, I am used to the interactive law school class, so you won't interrupt any kind of rhythm that I have. Um, so the first, the first part goes, the launch. In January, soon after the book was published, the law school had a party for local alums, including the generations of former students who had worked on the book, colleagues and friends. So here's what I said at the very first. Um, how special it is to launch the book in the very building where Clara, the Clara Foltz venture was born and where the immense research project has been carried out by dedicated students, skilled librarians, and well-organized staff. The Clara Foltz cottage industry, which I've been running for many years. Now, how many? That's the question that everyone asks me. It's just like being pregnant, you know, like everybody pats, when's it due? Uh, and, and people say to me, wherever I go, how long did it take you to write that book? When people ask, I intone, I do not recall. <laughs> and add that my years of practice as a criminal defense lawyer taught me they can't get you for perjury if you say you don't remember. <laughs> But my little joke has not been enough to stem the persistent interest in the fact that the project took so long. 
So in my first talk and in almost all my talks, I've tried to explain why it took so long. First, it really is part of the genre. Biographies just do take a long time because every, every life, especially a big public life, touches so many others. And uh, then there are the times that the person lived in, and Clara Foltz lived in especially interesting times. Uh, sometimes I think she was the Forrest Gump of the 19th century because she keeps showing up. Whatever happened, there's Clara Foltz, or there she is writing about it or thinking about it. And she's also, it, it, there, in her time, she was extremely famous, so that there's a kind of fascinating quest narrative here. How could somebody that was so famous in her time be so completely forgotten in ours? Uh, and then there are the psychological reasons, and that, as the years rolled on, uh, I began uh, to uh, be a little sensitive about, um, which is people thinking that I, I couldn't finish. Uh, the reason I didn't finish is because I wasn't able to. Um, and there are some psychological reasons that interfere with the end of it. it every biography has a sad ending, you know, the subject dies, and, um, and which you don't want, and you become entangled with her as a companion in your life, and you're fighting for her immortality and your own through her. Um, and then there is, the, you know, the most salient fact is that her papers, her letters, her drafts, her files, her diaries, her scrapbooks, are lost, uh, and those are, I spent some good amount of time looking for those, um, and, um, uh, and then the rest of the time reconstructing those. So the acknowledgments in the book are in some ways a very important part of it. Um, generations of Stanford students and former students have helped me uh, uh, put together, in, in effect, her papers, and at first, the first few years or so, I, I became concerned, like, what's going to happen if I spend all this time and publish the book, and then somebody comes up with their papers, you, you know. But, but now I'm, I'm so sure I've gotten it right that the papers uh, would just add. Um, but much of the work was done before the golden age of search engines, so that the students were... Um, uh, going through microfilm and dusty archives and the files in courthouse basements. Uh, now, initially, I tried to interest publishers um, in, in the book, and, uh, and they rejected her because they said Foltz was an unknown regional figure, a footnote in history at best. I, I think they were talking about Foltz. <laughs> but uh, but what was so great about Clara Foltz and why did she deserve years of my time and resources? Why should you care about Clara? So that's the first thing I want to talk about. <clears throat> and I want to start with the Slate article. Soon after publication, I was invited to write eight or nine hundred words on the subject of uh, why should we care about Clara Foltz? 
And so I, I uh, for a slate. And so I, I spent, you can't imagine how long I spent, uh, how much effort to explain to the young and hip why this 19th century woman lawyer from the far west was great and interesting and why her life should be meaningful to them. So I have this folder in my computer that I was looking at today. It says Slate Article, and it has like a dozen files in it, ranging from Slate Draft, and there's Slate Final, one to five. Then there's Slate Not So Final, <laughs> and uh, Slate New Take, one and two. None of them was published in Slate, let me tell you though the new take was published in The Recorder, which is a magazine for lawyers. So I want to, I want to give you slate number one, uh, labeled slate final. Clara Foltz became one of the first women lawyers in the United States when she fought her way into the California bar in 1878. In a career full of firsts, she was a trial lawyer before women could serve on juries, a highly paid political orator before they could vote, and a public intellectual at the dawn of the era of mass media. For 50 years, Foltz worked for equal rights for women and constitutional rights for the criminally accused. She was the founder of the movement for the public defender to match the public prosecutor. And in all of her activities, she enjoyed a curiously modern type of personal celebrity. The press covered her appearance, her fashionable dress, her wit and charm, along with her latest opinions and, and achievements. Most of all, they marveled that while pursuing every professional opportunity, she was a single mother of five young children. She was, in short, the first apostle of having it all, and her life serves as both heroic example and cautionary tale about the limits of the possible. The heroic part starts with her improbable path to first woman fame. As a girl growing up in Iowa, Foltz formed the idea of being a lawyer like her father. But instead, she eloped at 15 with a handsome Union soldier, 10 years her senior. Jeremiah Foltz was never a good provider, and after 15 years of marriage, he deserted Clara and their young children in the midst of an economic depression. In 1879, she divorced him. She hid her true situation by describing herself as a widow who became a lawyer to support her family. Her story was that she had tried keeping boarders, teaching school, sewing dresses and hats, and she knew that she could not make enough to maintain her children at these proper feminine occupations. Thus, it was not from outrageous ambition but from a mother's desperation that she defied the conventions about women's proper sphere. This story made her goals more acceptable, especially to the men whose help she needed. 
Yet it was a bold and radical move at best. Many women left suddenly with children to support had tried dressmaking. Many had taken in boarders. None, none had become a lawyer. Moreover, in California, where she had moved in the mid-1870s, the state law expressly restricted the legal profession to white men. Folks turned first to getting that law changed. Catching a free ride in the caboose of a cattle train from San Jose, her home, to Sacramento, she carried a little bag of biscuits and boiled eggs for her only nourishment. Those details, a little bag of biscuits and boiled eggs, uh, are included in the story as you retold it over the years. They, they turn up again and again. So I, when I went to give a talk in Sacramento, I took a little basket of bo- <laughs> <laughs> just, just for the sense of it, of boiled eggs and biscuits. With other suffragists, Joining in the lobbying effort and with the support of sympathetic male legislators, the woman lawyer's bill carried by a narrow vote and went to the governor on the final day of the session in 1878. Now, Fultz wrote the woman lawyer's bill, and all she did was just substitute any person of good moral character can be a lawyer. So for uh, any white male of good moral character can be a lawyer. So this opened the bar to minority men uh, and women, uh, as well as white women. She didn't just put in white women. And yet there was no debate about admitting uh, uh, anybody but women. Uh, and the debate was all uh, about uh, uh, how uh, the republic would fall if, if women became lawyers. Um, unless he signed before midnight, the, the bill went to the governor on the final day of the session, and unless he signed before midnight, it would die. As Fultz described the last act of the drama, she slipped by the guards at the door of the governor's uh, office, pushed her way past a room full of men, and begged the governor, who had never shown any previous interest in the subject, to please let women be lawyers. Slowly and deliberately, he picked her bill from the discard pile and signed. Just then, the clock struck 12. (laughs) And her life has many such dramatic tales. Uh, Some of the best were about her cases, where she virtually always represented the underdog, often a criminal defendant. The book contains 18 full-scale descriptions of trials and appeals, uh, and I think uh, it's one of the parts of the book that I'm proudest of because it took a lot of effort uh, to put them together. One tells, for instance, of a case in San Francisco in which she defended a young Italian immigrant accused of arson. The imposing prosecutor, Thaddeus Stonehill, a combat veteran of two wars, attacked her before the jury as one of those women who come to court to show off. Foltz responded, 
I am that formidable and terrifying object known as a woman, while he is only a poor, helpless, defenseless man, and he wants you to take pity on him and give him a verdict. True, she said, I am a woman lawyer, but it is not so new or wonderful a thing. I came into the practice of my profession under the laws of this state regularly and honestly, and I have come to stay. I am neither to be bullied out nor worn out. Her speech won the case, and according to Clara Foltz, her whole career was full of such triumphs. On closer examination, however, her success was uneven and incomplete, due largely to rampant prejudice against public women and to the fact, I have to admit, that she wanted too much. Determined to be a famous lawyer and law reformer, an influential thinker, a rousing movement leader, and a glamorous and socially prominent lady, while also being a good mother and striking it rich, Foltz attempted more than any 19th century woman could achieve. But today, exceptional women are doing just what she envisioned and hoped for herself in terms of accomplishment. The formal barriers are down, sex discrimination has gone underground, and in, even been eradicated in some respects. Women hold high positions in government, academia, and, and law practice, exactly as Foltz predicted they would. Yet at the same time that women lawyers are reaching the pinnacle of the profession, they are also dropping out in increasing numbers. And evidence points to the difficulty of combi combining family and motherhood with intense uh, uh, law practice as the reason for this. Even in the 21st century, it may simply be impossible in many cases to have it all. That is Clara Foltz's cautionary message from across the years. So that's the Slate article that um, was not published anywhere. Here, here is New Slate, which uh, has some of the same features. I won't read the same features, but the New Slate uh, starts, when I went to Yale in the early 60s, we women, less than 4% of the nation's law students, faced outspoken prejudice, so raw it seems comical now. Our classmates pointed out that we were taking, we were taking places from men who needed law degrees to support women like us. Uh, and, and this was Yale, so that they needed law degrees to change the world, uh, uh, which we wouldn't be doing. A close friend, a very intelligent man, told me that women were not cut out to be lawyers. He, he thought I might be different, but on the whole, they weren't cut out to be lawyers, <laughs> as proven by the fact that despite their hundred years in the profession, women had not yet produced a single great advocate famous judge, or brilliant scholar. To myself, I, I thought 
that there probably had been some great women lawyers, but that they had been lost to the history written by men. I did not say what I recognize now, that sex discrimination stood in their way. Back then, I didn't even know the term. Sex discrimination had no name or understand the concept, and I wouldn't understand it until the modern women's movement started a few years later. At the end of the 60s, a wave of women poured into the law schools. Overnight, they were 20% of the students. It went from 4% to 20%. And today, the percentage hovers around half. And these were a new breed of women. They were not like my generation who had sought to assimilate and not cause trouble. They came from the civil rights movement. They had demands and they organized to pursue them. These new women wanted female law professors and special courses devoted to their interests, as well as integration of women's concerns into the whole curriculum. And they wanted support from the law school for their highest ambitions. With breathtaking speed, speaking in legal time, because the law is a very conservative profession and changes slowly, the women, together with sympathetic male allies, have achieved all of these goals. We have also turned to recovering our history. Uh, and as I suspected years ago, there were some impressive women lawyers at the very beginning whose careers deserve reconstruction. Clara Foltz is, in my view, the greatest of these. So now the second sort of general category of speeches that I've been making uh, as I piled up events, conferences, and celebrations, um, I realized that I couldn't give the same set speech everywhere. Even though the audience would not have heard it before, I had. So, so I started developing talks adapted to the particular groups, um, be they women's clubs or rotary clubs, rotary clubs, great audiences, <laughs> buy books. The um, public defenders, historical associations, scholarly conferences. Clara's Foltz's life was so rich and various that it contains multitudes. There's a story for everyone in her biography. One of, my, one of the audiences that is closest to my heart are the people interested in public defense. Now, so here's the basic speech about that, which I first gave to an audience in Los Angeles last uh, April. These days, I see most things in relation to and through the eyes of Clara Foltz, and I really can't think of any group that would give her as much satisfaction and pleasure as a whole audience coming out after working hours to consider the challenge of public defense. And Foltz would love to be remembered in Los Angeles, where she lived from 1906 until her death in 1934. 
where, for the first time in her life, she went to the polls, not to protest, but to vote, and where she saw the first public defender office established, not only the first in the state, but in the West, in the United States, and probably in the world, established by a city charter passed with women's votes. In Foltz's jargon, Los Angeles was the cradle of criminal defense. In this city also, the women lawyers, joined by many male allies, saw to the renaming of the main criminal court building as the Clara Shortridge Foltz Criminal Justice Center in 2002, inspiring me uh, in the last years of finishing the book as I received many emails from people writing to me and saying, you would like to know justice was done in the Clara Foltz Courthouse today. <laughs> the big question of the book, and in some ways the central question of the book, is how was it possible that an uneducated single mother of five practicing law in the far west <clears throat> long before women had political equality, come up with this idea, an entirely new way to practice law, and how did she publicize it in the most influential public forums and prestigious law reviews of the day? It starts with her first clients. Um, they were often poor people accused of crime. She had two kinds of clients to start with because uh, it took a lot, a, a certain amount of desperation to come to a woman lawyer. Uh, it, it was women wanting divorces um, and, uh, and poor people accused of crime. When she went to court on behalf of the people accused of crime, she found a male bastion second only to the polling place uh, in, in its roughness. Um, it was replete, the courthouses were replete with misfitunes, weapons flashed, body stories. Nice women did not go to the court, uh, even as spectators. She also experienced the unfairness of the imbalance between prosecutors and defenders. There was a structural unfairness uh, in, in the sense that the prosecutors were paid. They were even paid for convictions. Um, and they were tipped by complaining witnesses if they won. They were urged on by the vanity of winning cases, she said. She said that they had forgotten that they were supposed to be ministers of public justice, that they owed a duty to all the people, including the accused. And while there is, there is good historical uh, footing for this view of the prosecutorial office, uh, it was not commonly held at the time. In some ways, it was almost as original uh, as her uh, public defender idea. As an outsider and a newcomer to the criminal courts, Foltz saw the injustices that were ignored by the regulars who, she said, were deadened in feeling by constant contact. 
It was not a great mental leap from Foltz's first-hand observations to the idea that the government was responsible for a fair presentation of both sides of the case. At the same time, though, that she spoke for justice uh, for the accused, Foltz's subtext was equal treatment for women in the courtroom. Too often she had found herself on trial along with her client, him for his alleged crime and her for doing this dirty, unfeminine work of representing criminals. While suffering these personal attacks as plain Mrs. Foltz, she imagined a titled government official, maybe even herself, of equal status with the prosecutor. A public defender would elevate the representation of the criminally accused so that all reputable lawyers, but especially women, could do the work. Another sense in which her public defender idea sprang from her feminism was that she believed that women were the great reformatory power of the age and that when they had the vote, they would purify politics and when they became lawyers, they would improve the profession and they would do it with ideas like the public defender. <clears throat> now, what did Foltz do to promote the public defender? She didn't just uh, uh, write about it, uh, though she did that. She presented her idea to the Congress of Jurisprudence and Law Reform at the 1893 World's Fair, uh, an extremely prestigious platform. She published it in the Chicago Legal News and the Albany Law Journal, she wrote a statute, an actual public defender statute, and saw to its introduction in more than a dozen states. She took it herself to the premier state legislature in New York in its first session in 1897. She wrote two other impressive law review articles, one on prosecutors and one published in the American Law Review, which was the, the very top of the law reviews, uh, it, uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes and James Bradley Theater and uh, all the greats uh, were behind the American Law Review. She was one of the first women to publish there, and she wrote a, a primer of the basic arguments for the office there. There are two things to note uh, about her Defender. It, it, was, it was quite an original idea. Um, she, one was that this public defender should represent everyone who asked. It wasn't just for the indigent defender, defense, defendant. Uh, he could still have private counsel uh, if he could afford one, or he could have both. Justice should be free, she said. Free justice was her slogan. Uh, and innocent men should not have to pay for their own defense, bankrupting themselves and ruining their families. Uh, even if they could, they shouldn't have to. Uh, secondly, she believed uh, that all were innocent in the eyes of the law. She made no distinction between the actually innocent and those that were presumed innocent. Uh, there, now, there was something, this this 
right, individual rights-based presumption of innocence was another quite original idea that she had. Um, it was also strategic because if this public defender was to have real respect and equality, uh, he might not be able to get it if he represented only the poor and the outcast. But if he was available to everybody, uh, that, would, um, that, that would give him equal status. The idea of public defense, that the state should pay for the defense that it believes, uh, of those it believes have violated its laws and statutes, uh, and that it should provide the kind of intimate individual service involved in, in actually defending a person um, is truly a radical idea. Uh, it, it's a socialistic idea. It's an incredibly idealistic to even think it is possible. And uh, today, public defenders are everywhere, and the public defense is the main channel for the delivery of defense services to the indigent, and yet it is still not widely accepted or really understood because there's no uh, governmental institution, even vaguely, like the public defender. Her peroration uh, was that the, uh, let the criminal courts be reorganized upon a basis of exact equal and free justice. Let our country be broad and generous enough to make the law a shield as well as a sword. It was, it, it, it was uh, just an amazing, amazing idea and still is. Um, now, the, the other kind of speech that I, or another kind of speech I've been making uh, has to do with woman suffrage. And there was real serendipity involved in the fact that the book came out on the 100th anniversary of women's suffrage in California. So I have spoken at wonderful uh, community events to celebrate this anniversary. Uh, of, um, uh, especially, I especially enjoyed a suffrage talk that I gave in San Luis Obispo on October the, the 10th, which was the date in 1911 that women won the right to vote in California. It was the sixth state to give women uh, suffrage. Clara Foltz's life vividly reflects the story of woman suffrage in California. She was here virtually from the beginning of the movement in the state, and she had a significant part in the victory. Now, I, I, in full celebratory mood, the book has uh, a, a lot of the details of the suffrage battle, um, but I want to give you the highlights of this story, a triumphal rendition without the infighting and petty and not-so-petty jealousies, tribal divisions, and loyalties that are part of every movement uh, or, indeed, especially movements on the left, uh, or indeed every human endeavor. Uh, as instructive as these are, uh, this is not the time to do it. Uh, it's, it's interesting stuff, though. It's in the book. Uh, they are reflected in Chapter 6, and they make a cautionary story 
for the modern women's movement now in its third wave. For all her long public life, Foltz found her main inspiration in the movement for women's rights, which had its official start at a meeting in Seneca Falls, New York, in 1848, the year before Foltz was born. 300 reformers gathered to consider the stark subordination of the female sex in the legal and political arena. In most places in the United States, women could not own property after marriage, gain custody of their children upon divorce, attend institutions of higher learning, join the professions, vote or hold office. When Foltz was 14, she heard Lucy Stone, one of the great orators of the early women's movement, assail the gender ideology which assigned females to the home while reserving public action exclusively to males. Leave women to find their sphere and do not tell us before we are born even that our province is to cook dinners darn stockings, and sew-on buttons. Into her old age, Foltz would describe this speech as a life-altering event. But it took a while for Stone's words to have their effect. On the political stage, the Civil War absorbed reformist energy. Women activists put aside their own demands for the duration of the conflict. They emerged from the war expecting to receive the vote along with the former slaves whose cause many had linked with their own. Instead, it would be a long battle for political equality. Like countless others, Foltz spent most of her adult life petitioning, lobbying, leafleting, speaking, rallying, writing, pleading, and importuning for full rights as a citizen. Though they did not come close to winning suffrage in the 1880s when Foltz first threw herself into the struggle full time, the women led by Foltz and by Laura Gordon, her friend and the second woman lawyer in the state, had gained some victories in the legislature they had bills allowing women to be lawyers, notary publics. Now, notary public doesn't sound like much, but uh, it's a minor ministerial post today, but it used to be an important job with money-making potential and a patronage job. Uh, and, um, and getting women allowed, uh, you had to be, to be a notary public, you had to be a voter. So getting women... Uh, uh, accepted as notary publics, even before they were voters, was a big step. Uh, and uh, she got a bill passed making women executors of estates. But there was very little progress um, for, for a decade, a uh, decade and a half, on the vote in California in the 1880s and 1870s. And this was typical of the whole suffrage scene. After 20 years of post-Civil War campaigning, only Wyoming had votes for women in its constitution. 
North and South Dakota, Montana, and Washington join the union with male suffrage only. The admission of Washington in 1889 was especially painful because it had been a suffrage territory, but women had used their votes to curtail the liquor traffic, and they paid a heavy price uh, in return. Then, in the 90s, came the Chicago World's Fair, which inspired and resuscitated the suffrage movement. Uh, you know, we would have all gone to the World's Fair in 1893. We would have found a way to get there. Half the population of the United States, 26 million people, passed through the fair's electronic turnstiles, themselves one of the wonders of the fair, between May and September 1893. Though the sights were astonishing, it was the symbolism of the fair that made it important to the huge crowds in attendance. It marked the reunification of the country after the Civil War and its emergence on the world stage as a great power. Clara Foltz twice left her faltering practice in San Francisco and went to the fair, where she attended the first ever nationwide meeting of women lawyers and she spoke for her original idea of public defense on a platform with the leading lawyers and professors in the world, and where she met with many suffragists on many levels, and she saw Susan B. Anthony embrace Bertha Palmer, the wealthy socialite who had been put in charge of the women's official fair role. Fultz returned from the fair to San Francisco. It just gave her this idea. She started the Portia Law Club to teach women law and interest them in suffrage. And she had a part in the legislative victory of 1895 when a constitutional amendment was passed submitting votes for women to the electorate. <clears throat> Foltz was away in New York for the actual, actual campaign in 1896, in which the suffragists lost by a few thousand votes after an arduous statewide campaign. Today, it seems hard to believe that women waited so long and fought so hard for such a fundamental civil right as the vote, and especially I've talked to uh, high school students um, and 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 they they look at me with wide eyes and say, well, well, what were the votes? What were the arguments against it? <laughs> so, uh, they uh, they can't even conceive it, and I'm glad they can't conceive it. <laughs> uh, but but uh, many of the groups that I talk to shake their heads and say, but but why? Why didn't they give women the vote? The greatest obstacle facing Foltz and any other woman who wanted to vote or enter a profession or hold office or serve on a jury, all of these uh, were, were, the, they were the same arguments. And it was the basic belief that each sex had its own sphere, inscribed in nature and ordained by nature's God. Women were destined for the exalted but limited role of homemaking and child-rearing. Men occupied the public sphere of business and government, 
where they represented their families as well as themselves. Clara Fultz said that whatever it was that she tried to do, her opponents constantly dished up prattling babes, cooing doves, and woman's fear. Her lifetime strategy was to avoid rather than to confront the powerful, pervasive spheres ideology. Though very prominent in public life, starts a typical article, Mrs. Foltz is never so happy and contented as when in the privacy of her home. <laughs> and it concluded that Foltz was a standing demonstration that a woman could be an attorney and an orator without losing the graces or sweetness or beauty that crowns and glorifies woman in the home. She claimed, and this is the most improbable, that she loved to wash dishes and clean <laughs> and cook and sew and all the rest of it. And she also said, my husband declared I was a better cook than his dear old German mother. Foltz's motherhood was a strong point in her favor in a Spears debate, and she used it freely, taking her children with her uh, to court and on the legislative floor. Her lifelong emphasis on dress, I always say the only reform that Clara Foltz was not into was dress reform. She was into high fashion. She once said that frumpish females actually hurt the movement. Uh, as a lawyer, Foltz competed with men who feared her feminine advantage and so attacked her for being out of her sphere. She entreated them to meet her upon the merits of law and fact without this everlasting and incessant reference to sex. On occasion, however, she used her sex. They call me the lady lawyer, a dainty subriquet that aided me in browbeating my way through the marshes of ignorance and prejudice. Year after weary year, she browbeat her way until the first decade of the new century. Foltz had moved to Los Angeles after the 1906 earthquake and fire in San Francisco, and she was part of the renewed suffrage movement there uh, after the 1896 loss which focused on all the things that women would do with the vote rather than on their innate human right to have it. Woman suffrage was one of 23 constitutional amendments submitted to the male voters in a special election on October the 10th, 1911. No candidates were running in this special election, only ideas ideas about restructuring government and extending its regulatory powers, cleaning up correction, corruption, corralling the railroads and other greedy corporations. Votes for women fit with reforms designed to strengthen democratic rule, such as the referendum and recall and the direct election of senators. Given their commitment to true democracy, the newly formed progressive movement had to endorse woman suffrage. Yet some of their leaders were tepid in their support, while the opposition was hot. A group of well-known men designated themselves the Committee of Fifty 
and spoke for the real ladies who did not want the vote. Anti-suffragists from the East came to supplement the homegrown remonstrance, as they were known. Opponents drew on the scare tactics that had succeeded in the past, especially the claim that woman suffrage would result in prohibition of alcohol. Usually effective with working people and immigrant groups, the argument did not suffice this time, partly because the dialogue centered on civic rather than moral reform and the effect of alcoholism on the workforce and the need generally to improve industrial conditions was the focus. Moreover, the women's group's concern with liquor control, which was a powerful uh, political group, uh, were just one cog in a well-organized machine of more than 50 clubs, leagues, unions, and parliaments all over the state. Many of these were devoted to civic improvements and social work among the poor, in addition to suffrage for themselves, making the campaign more palatable to many. Everyone worked under a loose central organization which did not try to dictate a single line on any issue. And they used new methods and strategies. Women made their enfranchisement the major issue on this crowded ballot. They automobiled into the countryside and gathered crowds for impromptu stump speeches. In the cities, they went door to door and pleaded the cause to whoever answered. This was very unusual and brave. Millions, millions of flyers, leaflets, booklets, pens, and signs were distributed. Clara Foltz traveled the length and breadth of the state, speaking in towns, sheep ranches, crossroads, and mining camps, raising good audiences and memories of her previous political stumping in the 70s and 80s. 80s. As president of the Votes for Women Club, she set a goal of 5,000 members, and they held weekly rallies in a hall seating 800 people. Foltz and her younger friend, Mary Foy, were determined to have some fun while winning the vote. They tooled around in Foy's automobile, making speeches and holding press conferences. And most memorably, they took off in a hot air balloon, distributing suffrage flyers over the crowds below. Another fine moment was the unfurling of a gigantic Votes for Women banner in the golden poppy color the suffragists preferred to plain yellow. It stretched across Broadway, directly opposite Foltz's law office. From a balcony, she pulled the cord and a brass band played, while hundreds cheered and wept with joy at the eminence of victory. Foltz's office was campaign central for her club. There they held a series of noon meetings for businessmen, who came for a free lunch and a brisk suffrage talk. Uh, for those, lunch was free to those who made up their minds to place the ballot in feminine hands. <laughs> Altogether, it was a remarkable effort, the cleverest campaign ever made in the state for any cause and the most brilliant suffrage campaign ever waged. 
Yet despite the vigorous, sophisticated operation, suffrage passed by a mere 2% of the vote, 3,587 votes of 246,487 246,487 ballots cast. More men voted on this amendment than on any other measure, and it won by the narrowest margin, with the southern counties and the countryside providing the victory. Since every vote counted, Clara Foltz was right when she said that her club's magnificently planned campaign was a big factor in the outcome. We represented a noble division of women in the suffrage army and contributed one of the brightest pages to California's history, one which the womanhood of the future should recall with increasing gratitude. In her name, I recall it today. Uh, we today stand on the shoulders of generations of women's rights women, as Foltz proudly called herself, and ultimately her work for women's cause ennobled and enabled all her efforts. So I'd love to um, talk to you. Yes. Uh, who was taking care of her children? <laughs> <laughs> who do you think? And how was she supporting herself while she was going to law school? Uh, that's what. Who do you think was taking care of her children? The oldest child, maybe, was fourteen. The oldest child, Trella, who was, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, sixteen, but um, her mother. She had her mother. And my precious mother, she always referred to her. She had little taglines for um, all of her family, but uh, she could never have done it without her mother. Uh, and, um, and her father was supporting her then, too? And, and no, no. She, um, support, she, she didn't go. This is what happened. The part of the story, there's another part of the story. There are many stories. It's only scratched the surface here. <laughs> but she did... Um, when what she did was um, she became a lawyer in 1878 uh, and, and there was no law school in California at the time and people just um, uh, read law, uh, apprenticed uh, in the office of, of the lawyer, uh, of, a, of another lawyer and, um, and then when they had read enough they went, uh, my students die when I tell them about this. Uh, <laughs> They, they went to the court where they wanted to practice, uh, and there was an oral examination with, uh, with uh, the, the, the judge of the court where they wanted to practice and the, their, um, the person they had apprenticed with and then a, a, a top member of the local bar. And they had an oral exam for 30 or 40 minutes. Uh, and if they passed, uh, they became a lawyer. And uh, so it was. It was uh, the state actually needed lawyers. Uh, and if if you uh, if you were a lawyer in another state, you, uh, you just presented your credentials. But the same legislature that passed the woman lawyers bill uh, accepted the gift of Serenus Clinton Hastings to establish the first law school in the state. 
And it was a matter of tremendous excitement to the um, to the bar, uh, to the and to all the uh, uh, people who wanted to be lawyers that they would, uh, but but to people who were already lawyers that they would have a chance to actually, you know, study the theory and the higher realms and you know not uh, not just how to do it, but to think about it. And um, and they brought a, a great. Um, uh, John Norton Pomeroy, this very famous professor from Columbia, to be to design a curriculum. So Foltz was um, she really want, just thought it'd be perfect for the first woman lawyer to to go to the first law school, and uh, in the state and her suffrage friends. Uh, and there was uh, there was a woman in in San Jose, Sarah Knox Goodrich, who was a um, a suffragist and uh, a very wealthy widow, um, and they they got together and gave her a scholarship, and uh, to go to Hastings, and and so she took the the older children, uh, and left her the younger ones with her mother, uh, in San Jose, and she went went to um, Hastings, and she was so. Uh, this this almost makes me cry. She was so uh, excited to go to law school. See, remember, she'd only had uh, a few years of formal schooling before she eloped. Um, and uh, so the, the idea of going to law school uh, was very exciting to her. But on the third day of her attendance, um, she got this notice, uh, this, Dear Madam, we have decided not to admit women to the law school. So she went to the dean and asked why, and he said um, that the rustling of her skirts was bothering the other scholars. <laughs> and um, so, so that um, she, she did what any lawyer would do. Uh, she sued them, you know, uh, and, and, and she sued them to gain admission, and it was a big deal. Uh, there were a lot of, lot of people came and she gave a brilliant argument and she won her case, which she really had to because Hastings was uh, established as part of the University of California, which had been uh, um, uh, co-educational since its founding. And, and so that, um, but they tried to make an argument that this was private or that women didn't really belong and Clara Fultz said, you know, that it seems to be that the directors think that women can practice law, but they shouldn't learn it, you know. Uh, but, but then after she won the case, which she had to win, but meanwhile the case, you know, the time is ticking by. And meanwhile she, she is trying to, to support herself by taking cases because she's a lawyer. And... Um, uh, and and uh, the the time that she has her scholarship is running out, and and then when she won, the the board of directors appealed, and uh, and 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 to her dying day, she she complained about that. You know, I mean, they had a right to appeal, but they but she really thought it was wrong of them since she had then since she was right. But then she had to, to join the Supreme Court bar take another exam, a, a somewhat more difficult exam, and argued her own case in, in, in the Supreme Court of California and, and won it. But by then it was really too late for her to go to law school because she had, 
she had to, uh, to earn a living, and the scholarship had run out. And she did, it, you know, on, in terms of one of the themes of the book is is her constant struggle and to to make a living. But she uh, she had time. Sometimes she would hit a big case, a big payday, uh, and win. Um, and uh, uh, and and other, uh, but mostly she was. It was always a struggle um, to 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 get clients, and she had to do other things, which which a lot of lawyers did. It was hard for all lawyers uh, to to make a living uh, unless you had family wealth or connections. Um, and uh, uh, but anybody who just had to hang out a shingle was. Um, it was difficult, so so um, she did she did other things like she ran a daily newspaper in San Diego, um, and <laughs> I know it blows my mind. And then she also um, she she was a highly paid political orator. Uh, she was paid uh, you know what the, the equivalent of thirty or forty thousand uh, dollars at the time for. Uh, for uh, her political speeches in the uh, presidential campaigns of the uh, 1880s, and and one of the I think one of the best or most interesting parts is is here is this woman who doesn't have the vote, speaking to audiences of thousands of people uh, about um, you know, about the protective tariff was one of her big topics. Um, and um, they and giving these intricate and being highly paid for doing it. Um, and she went on. She also went on a couple of cross-country lecture tours, uh, in which you you really could. It was still unusual enough uh, for women to be on the platform. And she was a great dramatic orator. Uh, she was able to draw crowds uh, and make money doing it. Yes. Do you say something, if you know, about the um, early history of women serving on the bench in California, when that came about, and how how much of it, and just or an interesting story about whatever you might happen to know about? The, uh, the Clara Fultz. I'll start with Clara Fultz. That was one of the things that she always wanted was to be a judge. Um, but it was, and and uh, she talked about running. You know, once women got the vote, running for the judgeship, but she, uh, but she never did. And the first woman federal judge was appointed in 1934, the year that Clara Foltz died. But um, um, when women got the vote, and especially in Los Angeles, where um, where women uh, were really very well organized. Um, there were a couple of women judges early on uh, in the 30s and 40s. One of them was named Georgia Bullock. This, this, is, this, this website here, which is also noticed in the book, this is our website, and we have, um, a, we have the, the sort of biographical papers on, um, on hundreds of women lawyers, but including these early uh, California judges. Uh, Georgia Bullock was one, and then there was a, another woman in Northern California who was um, one of the very first women judges named Annette Abbott Adams, uh, who was also great. And these were right after Clara's time, 
that women came along. Uh, and, and, but, but it wasn't until they got the vote that they had any chance of, of being judges. But um, on this website, let me tell you, are the... Oh, it's it's uh, WLH. It's WLH. It's W Women's Legal History. If you just Google Women's Legal History, you'll get there too. That's I, I love that. It comes up first if you Google Women's Legal History. But um, uh, there are the bibliographic notes to the book. I was I turned out that they're just like a second book. They're hundreds of pages of sort of notes of uh, and. And there's, uh, but then there is, um, the, um, also we have about, uh, I don't know how many, it's, it, I, I taught a course in women's legal history, and I was getting these wonderful papers. Everybody took a, um, a, a chapter in the life of a pioneer woman lawyer and did this same kind of archival research that I did on the Clara Foltz book on these early women lawyers, and there are lots of them, uh, and they're so interesting. And, um, and, and I was getting these great papers, and so I said to our librarians, I, you know, I, I, I just feel bad about this because nobody sees this, and these students are going on to practice law. They're not going to publish these papers. And they said, let's start a website. So we started this website and put the students' work there, and um, and it's become a real a real source. So there are the um, lots of, of early women lawyers and very interesting, excellent work on them, and then um, and then there are the bibliographic notes for the book, which run to three or four hundred pages. Um, and and it's all indexed uh, also, and um, and then the details of the book tour and reviews. It's it's a, it's really a fun site, I think. Yes. What, what uh, happened to her children? Did they become lawyers? No, uh, no, they didn't. Her, she had uh, three daughters, um, and her three daughters became all actresses, actresses and singers. Yeah. And uh, and and they had some success, but but, and then her two sons were businessmen. But but one of the um, tragedies of her life, and, and maybe the greatest tragedy, is that four of her children predeceased her, and um, so that that was um, really I think it was terrible, and uh, for her, and she she only had two. Um, grandchildren, and and then they only had a few children, you know, which I, you know, I've tracked down. But but she, you know, for somebody that had five children, not to have more descendants uh, was was sad. And they, but they were all. She she always felt she often said that all the joys of my um, young motherhood I sacrificed to women's cause. Um, but I, I don't think that was true. I think, I, on the whole, I think she, she, she kept her family together. This was her ambition. You know, usually women in her situation would have to parcel out the children to relatives, and, and she kept them all together. She supported them. Um, they were all good citizens. Um, and um, 
so and and, and I think I think they had some fun, um, you know that. But but she but she wasn't. Um, she was always sad about not having time to be a better mother. She felt like she wasn't a great mother. But, yes. When did her celebrity That what happened, and and that's really sad for a long time, um, and I think that might have been, you you know, if you were um, psychologically minded, you might say that was the reason I had so much trouble finishing the book. See, was I didn't want to tell the end, so I decided to just stop it in 1911. You know, when the public defender passes and women get suffrage, so why talk about the end, which wasn't terrible except that her children died and, and that she, the, the big thing that happened was that the younger um, college educated suffragist just thought she was an old dinosaur, you know, and, um, and, and was ridiculous and rejected her leadership. And, um, and, and so that, um, that, that, not all of them, but I mean, she, there were younger women that that thought she was great and and um, that that she worked with. But on the whole, the big leaders of the um, of the movement, it passed out of her hands, and they, you know, they were willing to uh, say she had been good in her time. But but they were very quick to say her time was over, which she didn't think, you know, and. Um, she she uh but she lived to be 84 and um she uh, um she always enjoyed life um that that's one of the things that has been really uh, nice about having her companionship over these years because she wasn't the kind of person that said oh you know, let's wait till we get suffrage and then we'll have a good time. You know, it was more like, let's have a good time now while we're getting suffrage, you know. So so I don't think she thought of herself at the end of her life as as sad. But it, but when you really, there are no achievements um, at, at all and um, no big cases and, and nothing that she wrote or anything. So it is... She did, she put out this, um, when she was in her 60s, um, she put out a, a kind of slick magazine called The New American Woman, and, uh, which she wrote mostly herself, and, and, uh, and in it she had an autobiographical column that, um, she, she, that she put together just from her old stories and speeches, um, Called um, the struggles and triumphs of a woman lawyer, and and you have to know that that was the struggles and triumphs um, was the name of P. T. Barnum's autobiography, and <laughs> and there's a lot of um, resemblance, you know, and the thing. But the end, the last, um, I would say the last twenty years of her life, at least, were sad, and just as well. Not to look into them too closely. Yeah. So. Yes. Yeah. You mentioned that she um, gave some speeches during some of the presidential elections. Yes. I was just curious if she was she supporting uh, Grover Cleveland at that time. 
she she supported Cleveland once and opposed him once. <laughs> she she switched uh, she switched parties because um, some people said because because the Republicans wouldn't pay what she asked uh, and uh, the Democrats would. But uh, I think that's one of the most um, fascinating parts. She started off, it's in, ch in chapter two, in this, this, uh, because it's you know, really not known. I mean, the idea of, of a woman speaking to thousands and thousands of people uh, in these presidential campaigns long before women have the vote or can uh, do anything is just kind of amazing. And, uh, but but uh, but she did in uh, in 1888. She started out talking for the Republicans, speaking for the Republicans, and she was known as the Lady Orator, the Lady Orator of the Republicans. Uh, but then she became the Lady Orator of the Democrats. <laughs> so. Well, it's been a marvelous evening, and Pat from the bookstore has been patiently waiting out there, and I'm sure your appetites have been whetted for the book. So. Um, Please give Barbara a round of applause and then meet her out in the lobby. Thank you. For more, please visit us at stanford.edu.